0: A Year of Roving the Red Planet, this week on Planetary Radio. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Public Radio's travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan. We're celebrating a remarkable anniversary. Mars rover Spirit bounced down to Mars on January 3rd, 2004. We'll talk about a year of excitement and discoveries with Mars Exploration Rover Principal Investigator Steve Squires and Project Manager Jim Erickson. First, though, here are a few headlines from around our solar system. The Huygens probe remains on track for descent into the thick atmosphere of Saturn's moon Titan on January 14. Meanwhile, Cassini has taken some spectacular close-ups of Iapetus. You can see them at planetary.org. Deep Impact is almost ready for a launch that will send it hurtling toward a violent encounter with a comet on the 4th of July. We'll have more about that mission on next week's show. And speaking of violent encounters, NASA reports that we won't be having one with an asteroid called 2004 MN4. Further research has set aside fear of a 2029 collision with the 1,300-foot-long near-Earth object. There's much more to come on Planetary Radio, including Bruce Betts and a new trivia contest. I'll be back with Steve Squires right after Emily takes us to the stars.
1: Hi, I'm Emily Lochdewala with questions and answers. A listener asked, what is the most distant object from the Earth that was built by humans? The Voyager 1 spacecraft is the human-made object that is most distant from her birthplace. Each year, she adds a third of a billion kilometers to her distance from the Earth. In fact, Voyager 1 is traveling so fast that she will eventually escape the pull of the Sun's gravity entirely. This is very unusual for objects within the solar system. All of the planets, moons and asteroids, and nearly all of the comets and other spacecraft orbit the Sun on elliptical paths. These elliptical paths mean that they will circle round and round the Sun forever. But Voyager 1's orbital path is not an ellipse. It is in the shape of a different conic section, a hyperbola. A hyperbolic orbit is open-ended, so Voyager 1 will never again return to the neighborhood of the Sun. What other spacecraft are on hyperbolic orbits? Stay tuned to Planetary Radio to find out.
0: Cornell Professor of Astronomy Steve Squires has joined us several times He is principal investigator for the Athena Science Payload on both Spirit and Opportunity, the Mars Exploration Rovers. Steve, congratulations on a year of rolling around Mars.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Quite an accomplishment. You guys must be uh, celebrating, even though we're only celebrating the first complete Earth year, and only for Spirit at this point.
2: Yeah, we're celebrating, we're tired, (laughs) um, we're joyful we're having a heck of a good time
0: has it been a a grueling although exciting year
2: i think that describes it well it's been grueling in the sense that um these are very demanding vehicles to operate you can't just give them a day off you know you've got to keep them busy and that keeps us very busy but at the same time it's been an utterly remarkable experience to, to go exploring around on the surface of mars i would not trade it for anything
0: a year ago at this time Did you have any thought, really realistic thought, that you would be still so involved with these two rovers?
2: No, I mean, you know, if you had sat me down and given me truth serum and said, okay, Squires, (laughs) you know, (laughs) to to be honest, how long do you really think they're going to last? Don't give me this 90-day stuff. How long do you really (laughs) think they're going to last? I would have said, you know, I would have swallowed hard, and I would have said, 120, 150, maybe if things really break our way, 180 days on the surface. But a year of operations, you know, four kilometers of driving with spirit, climbing mountain ranges, going down into impact craters, no, not for a second. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> not for a second and yet here you are and, yeah. and so much more science than you uh, must have also thought you'd uh, yeah, be yeah you
2: know the science that's, that's one of the things that's really surprised me is the way the science keeps on coming what I had not counted on was the diversity the, the variety at these landing sites and you got to wonder if is, you know, is all of Mars this good? I don't <laughs> think all of Mars is this good frankly I think we picked two good landing sites just a week ago we discovered a completely new kind of geologic material that nobody had ever seen on Mars before at, uh, at the Spirit site, just poof, out of nowhere. And, and it keeps on coming. And uh, that's been one of the remarkable things to me is that the rovers keep making new discoveries. Now, the downside to that, <laughs> I've come to realize, is that in a sense a rover's work is never done. You know, there's always going to be something good over the horizon. And what I'm starting to try to emotionally come to grips with here is the fact that we'll never be finished. You know, hmm. whenever they die, whether it's tomorrow or six months from now, there's always going to be something wonderful just over the horizon, out of reach.
0: Your colleagues, who uh, are now beginning to put together what will be known, I guess, as the Mars Science Laboratory, mm-hmm. yep. uh, you, Mars Exploration Rover on steroids, I guess, they must be awfully glad that you guys have been so successful, because now it's not about finding the water anymore.
2: Well, you know, it's funny. They're glad, but... We've really kind of raised the bar. Oh, we've raised expectations. You you really want and you really expect each mission to make a significant advance over the previous one. And for MSL to make a, a, a major advance over over our mission gets a little bit harder. Now I'm I'm involved in MSL too, so I'm kind of in that, <laughs> in that boat at the same time. It's a good boat to be in. But uh, yeah, each each day we keep going, it it uh, it, it certainly increases the. The uh, the payoff from this mission,
0: but I'm sure that you and they wouldn't have it any other way. No, I mean, no, everybody, no, no,
2: of course not. It, I mean, this is what you pray for.
0: Yeah, and and everybody always wants to run a fa- faster mile than the last one. So. <laughs> yeah. What would you point to over the last year as as the greatest discoveries? I mean, we've already talked about you know the question of was there water on Mars? That's old hat. That's so <laughs> that's so a year ago. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. That's a hard question to answer because it's still going on. You know, I mean, we discovered something today. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's hard to, to really put all of it in context. But I got to say, I think probably when we really sit back and look out on this, that the, the the most significant discovery will be the evidence for water on the surface at the Opportunity Landing site. And not just that there was water on the surface, but we really picked up, a lot of information about the details of what that environment was like. The water was salty. Uh, The conditions were arid, dry. Much of the time, the water sort of came and went. Hmm. Um, The water was probably very acidic. It was acid. It was sulfuric acid. It was a strange environment. We also learned that the rocks there are the kinds of rocks that are very good at preserving evidence of whatever was in the water. Um, I think the rocks there would be wonderful targets for uh, a sample return mission. It's hard to say, but at this point in time, I think I'd have to guess that that's going to turn out to be our, our, our most important scientific legacy.
0: If you had to uh, go one down from now, what would be number two?
2: Oh, wow. What would be number two? I think number two is going to turn out to be a story that's still emerging. Um, over at the, the, the Spirit Landing site, the first 160 days, of the Spirit landing site. We were driving around on dry old basaltic lava, you know, and there was some dust and there was a little salt here and there, and, and there was some, some interesting stuff going on, but it wasn't what we went for. And then around the 160th day of our 90-day mission, <laughs> we uh, we crossed over into a, a, a mountain range uh, called the Columbia Hills, mm-hmm. and uh, we've been in the Columbia Hills ever since. There's a story that's still emerging there, and we get new clues daily, and it's a story of explosive rocks, rocks that were formed by some violent event, either a volcanic explosion or an impact, a, a meteorite impact of some sort. But then after that, these rocks got wet. They were altered by water. We see minerals in the rocks that can only form in the presence of water. we mm. Patterns in their elemental chemistry that point to water. And, you know, we're still, we're still piecing that story together because you sort of get it a clue at a time. Each rock has its own little thing that it adds to the story, and gradually the evidence builds up and builds up. And it's still building there. We're still piecing that story together. And I think once all is said and done, that's going to be our, our, our second most important finding, but it's still coming together.
0: And it ain't over yet.
2: No, it ain't over by a long shot. Uh,
0: uh, Let's bring it back home, and I mean home to Cornell. Mm -hmm. You got to head this team for the uh, Athena Science payload on both rovers. Right. Pretty amazing opportunity, I think, considering that uh, I think more typical is what's going to happen with Mars Science Laboratory. A lot of great uh, investigations, but provided by a lot of sources. You guys are responsible for all of these.
2: Yeah, it was done a little bit differently, and, you know, it worked out well for us. The thing that I liked was that we were able to design all the pieces so that they worked together from the start in a very complementary fashion. I mean, when we first picked the instruments, we picked them so that when you got to a given rock, when you got to a given outcrop, each individual instrument, each individual tool would provide a a different complementary piece of the puzzle. And, you know, any one of them individually will sort of give you a very incomplete picture of what's going on. But you look at them together, they really work nicely as an ensemble, and being able to, to take that that basic concept and then, then craft it into a set of tools that really work together well was a was a real interesting scientific and engineering challenge.
0: And drop them on a, a pretty cool rover.
2: Oh, these are great rovers. <laughs> well, we <didn't>, we <laughs> Fantastic didn't, machines.
0: We we're just about out of time. We didn't get a chance to combine you in the same conversation with Jim Erickson, but uh, on this anniversary, uh, any message for uh, that manager and his uh, team of engineers at JPL?
2: Thank you, thank you, a thousand times. These guys built the most wonderful machines I've ever seen.
0: Those of us who were in the Pasadena Convention Center, me and, what, 1,200 other people and a whole bunch of people on the web, will always remember your face and your reaction (laughs) (laughs) on that day a year ago. And uh, thank you for that, Steve, and thank you for uh, uh, tremendous success on the planet Mars. It was a pleasure. Steve Squires is the principal investigator for the Athena Science Payload on both exploration Mars Exploration Rovers. And still, still, a year later, moving around Mars, making discoveries. He is also a professor of astronomy at Cornell University, his alma mater. And we'll be back right after this. We heard about the science side of the Mars Exploration Rover one-year anniversary from Steve Squires. Let's go to the fellow who leads the team of engineers Steve appreciates so much. Jim Erickson of the Jet Propulsion Lab near Pasadena, California, is the project manager. Jim Erickson, thanks very much for uh, taking some time out of your vacation to join us on Planetary Radio.
3: Well, anytime. I appreciate it. I like to spread the word out to the public. Congratulations on the completion of one year
0: of uh, rovers, spirits specifically, on Mars, one Earth year.
3: And we got another one coming up on the 24th. So with two anniversaries under our belt, it'll be nice to look forward to a couple couple more months, maybe longer of uh, action. What
0: are the right superlatives to use? You've got two spacecraft that have done incredible science, made amazing discoveries, and they really
3: probably should have been dead nine months ago, and they're still going strong. And we hope to keep them running a little bit longer, too. But I would like to point out that uh, Steve Squires is congratulating us, but it's really all of us, including the science community, that's been assisting us on the mission. It's been one real big team, and we've really pulled it off to a large extent because of how well we've worked together.
0: That was a theme that we covered on the show early on, that, uh, that the level of cooperation between the science side and the engineering side has really been a model, and, and you're saying that's held up?
3: It's it's still continuing to this day. We're, mm-hmm. we're really, really happy to see them um, when we get to see them. Right now, we get a lot more video conferences with them to do the daily in-and-out sequencing of what the rovers are going to be doing. But we're going to actually have them, as many as we can, come out here on the 24th and they're going to have a Project Science Group meeting, and afterwards we're probably going to go out a little bit and celebrate.
0: So you're going to celebrate that opportunity. I uh, think space. so. In the back of your mind, were you saying, well, yeah, the, the, the warranty is three months, but I'll bet you we're going to last longer? Or?
3: Actually, when we first started thinking about doing better than 90 days was, oh, probably about two weeks after landing when we actually knew hmm. what the power production out of the solar panels were mm-hmm. now we still had a lot of doubts that we'd get through the winter uh, primarily because we were expecting to have sort of a linear deposition of dust on the solar panels yeah and we wouldn't get as much energy as we as we might well a couple of things have happened one there was a possibility pre-launch and pre-landing that the dust deposition wasn't linear that it would tail off exponentially at some value hmm. um, based on some just end of the mission observations with the uh, sojourner uh, rover on Pathfinder. That turned out to hold up.
0: In other words, you would get the dust piling up to a certain point, and then you just wouldn't see it arriving at the same rate and sticking to those panels?
3: Right. It looks like it falls off at about the same rate as it uh, gets deposited. So that everything was uh, in good shape. What we actually saw was probably about a maximum of 25 to 28% loss huh. in the energy from the solar panels. And that's it, which meant we we're in much better shape than we could have been. And we made it through the winter. The shortest day of the year, everything went fine. We had enough power to keep everything uh, up to temperature and healthy. Mm -hmm. And after that, spring's coming. It's only going to get better.
0: What else can you point to
3: that would explain why these rovers have been so amazingly hardy? Well, in general, I'd have to say that there's a great design team that put them together. Mm -hmm. Um, You can't say enough about the people, what the plans were. We had to take into account worst-case analysis What's the worst thing that Mars could throw at us? And so far, we're seeing a lot of breaks in our favor in terms of the amount of driving we can do. We've got more energy, so we get farther per day as an option. We also do other things with that energy. So we're sort of, you know, living the good life right now and probably for the future in terms of power. And that was the biggest constraint that we had to face. Motors, wheel bearings, we got what we could. Um, The designs are beefier than than you would expect to last for only three months. But you can't really make them much, much uh, weaker than they actually are. So it really was the power constraint that was going to do us in. And once we got past that, we're still looking to see what might be the problem that we're going to come up with next. But so far, everything looks like it's a long ways off. I think it's probably going to be something like a random part failure in electronics that's mm-hmm. going to cause some kind of a problem. But
0: until uh, until that happens, and there's no way really to, to model that or predict that, an indefinite uh, future, an indefinite
3: horizon for these rovers? Well, every time we get close to the shortest day of winter, we're going to go through a, oh, I don't want to say a crisis, but we're certainly going to have a crisis of conscience anyway as to whether we're <laughs> going to survive that one. And we'll just have to wait and see each time. And the Martian years... Just about two years, uh, two Earth years. So think about that when you're talking about 06 in the summer, and uh, wow,
0: we'll see what happens. You guys started out on such a crazy schedule, Mars time. That at least mercifully ended, but it's still a pretty grueling schedule,
3: isn't it? We actually still work as sort of a modified Mars time. Hmm. On Monday, we'll start at 8 o'clock, Tuesday, 8.40, Wednesday, 9.20... Hmm. Thursday we're at 10 o'clock in the morning for the start time. But when we roll to the point where we're going to end our operations day at 11 a m. At, sorry eleven p.m. at night, we stop. Hmm. We start building two plans at a time, do less on each of those plans so we can accomplish it one day. And then the second day is just an update of the first one and a building of the second one. So we sort of begin to get ahead and are able to keep those two plans rolling. Then what happens is eventually we roll around to where – we can come in at 8 o'clock again, we jump back to 8 o'clock in the morning, and we start the day over again. Now, in addition to that, keeping our activities between 8 a.m. and 11 p.m., we've also begun trying to actually have weekends off, uh, <laughs> what like a most normal people, <laughs> <laughs> and it's worked okay. We get less done over the weekend days, and it really makes Friday kind of an ugly day, hmm. but um, everybody would... Rather have an ugly Friday than get Saturday and Sunday off fairly reliably. Yeah, um, it's nice to see the family every once in a while, mm-hmm. and weekends are a good thing. So we're doing okay.
0: This human side here, and what you've learned on the planet about making a rover do what it needs to do for a long time—I assume this is part of the legacy of the Mars exploration rovers, particularly as excitement starts to build about the next step, the Mars Science Laboratory.
3: There's a couple of things that we probably ought to talk about at this point. One is the fact that when the team was running on Mars time, and I do mean running on Mars time, the science community had a component that was actually monitoring our sleep habits, uh, logging some of our uh, activities. And we're seeing some of that research coming out, but there's probably going to be more in the future. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're still continuing to watch us. Mm. And so it's probably going to be a long-term activity for them to monitor us and write papers on how people struggle with uh, being on one planet and working on another.
0: Well, that's the, that's the human side. We're almost out of time. I mean, what advice are you giving to the MSL guys about how to build a rover that uh, is up to the
3: challenge on the red planet? It's interesting. We've got a whole series of lesson-learned meetings that we're having with them. Um, we've gone through probably 18 of them already, hmm. um, You know, three or four hours each. Different types of subjects, whether it's how the ground systems work, how the vehicle worked, how EDL worked we're actually even trying to find out how well the heat shield on reentry worked on opportunity that we you have crawled over to, to it yeah mm-hmm. and we'll see what the results are from that whether we can get good pictures, good science out of what's left of that heat shield
0: could you imagine uh, three rovers active on the surface of Mars?
3: could I imagine it yeah but 2009 that's that's a <laughs> long ways um, We'll have to wait and see. I certainly will do my best to make sure we're, we're there, but no promises. It, things can break.
0: Awfully nice work so far, no fault. And so, Jim Erickson, will simply say thank you very much. And once again, congratulations on uh, a year on Mars. Thank you. I'll pass it on to the team. And we'll be right back
1: after this. I'm Emily Lakdawalla, back with Q&A. Voyager 1 and 2 and Pioneer 10 and 11 are all on hyperbolic orbits, meaning that they will never circle around to return to the neighborhood of our Sun. Instead, they will travel forever. Eventually, long after the spacecraft have all ceased working, and possibly long after human civilization ceases working, they will visit other star systems. In 40,000 years, Voyager 1 will drift reasonably close to the star known as AC-793888 in the constellation of Camelopardalis. 300,000 years from now, Voyager 2 will pass distantly by Sirius, the brightest star in the sky. Pioneer 10 is perhaps the loneliest spacecraft of all. She will take more than two million years to pass Aldebaran, the nearest star on her trajectory. These intrepid explorers are the first human-made objects to escape the clutches of the sun's gravity. Hopefully, there will soon be more such spacecraft, perhaps even carrying humans to explore other stars. Got a question about the universe? Send it to us at planetaryradio at planetary.org. And now here's Matt with more Planetary Radio.
0: Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio with Dr. Bruce Betts, the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society. Bruce, Happy New Year, and in keeping with our theme, Happy One Year of Rovers on Mars.
4: Happy New Year, happy one-year rovers on Mars, and happy one-year Mars Express in orbit around Mars as well. Lest Although we forget Mars That started Express. a little bit earlier, still uh, carrying out a successful mission under the European Space Agency. Those two rovers both working much longer than expected, as you've been talking about. It's, uh, it's pretty exciting. Bruce, what else is up? Well, we've got uh, those festive and fun naked eye planets all playing and partying in the night sky Uh, before dawn. It's a really rare thing. Well, at least it's kind of rare. It'll be a few years before you can see all five at one time easily. Right now you can if you get up before dawn, which I don't consider easy, but some people do. (laughs) You can see the brightest object in the east is Venus, looking like an incredibly bright star-like object. Near (laughs) Venus, you will find pesky little uh, Mercury. They're switching places here, but right now uh, you have Venus with Mercury slightly to the lower left look to the upper right for dim mars slightly reddish farther to the upper right you will see jupiter also looking extremely bright though not as bright as venus whip your head around to the other side of the sky over in the west following the same line and you will find saturn you can also see saturn in the evening sky for those of us for whom pre-dawn is challenging and you will see it in the, uh, appearing in the east in the evening sky next to castor and pollux the stars
0: and when you look up at that reddish
4: Mars, be sure to wave to uh, Biff Starling and Sandy Moondest, who are up there on the rovers. And, and happy still. anniversary, Biff Starling, one year on the surface, and shortly, happy anniversary to Sandy Moondest, Sandy Moondest on the surface. People know from, from last week's show and the Huygens probe. About to enter the Titan atmosphere on January fourteenth it will enter the Titan atmosphere for a two to three hour descent through the atmosphere down to a hopefully brief few minutes that it will actually live on the surface and collecting data on the way. Uh, those who are in the Pasadena area or are interested in coming to the Pasadena area, the Planetary Society will be having an event about Huygens arriving at Titan. And it will feature a retrospective on Voyager and Cassini and all sorts of good stuff that's happening. So go to our website, planetary.org, for more information, or for more information on how to improve your life in general.
0: (laughs) I like that, and I hope they can. Uh, What else have you got for us today?
4: Random Space Fact! The length of the Mars day actually changes perceptibly during its perceptively during its season, uh because of ice sublimating from the poles going into the atmosphere and causing the rotation rate to change just slightly. That is so amazing. And you
0: mentioned this to me just before we started recording. You said it's like uh, an ice skater twirling. And they
4: pull their arms in, and of course, they spin faster. Right, because when you have lots of ice on the pole, you've got all that mass concentrated near the axis rotation, and then the ice skater stretches the arms out as the ice sublimates in usually carbon dioxide ice going into the atmosphere, which is mostly carbon dioxide, and it spreads over the planet, so it ends up slowing the rotation rate slightly, but then it begins depositing at the other pole, and you speed up the rotation a little bit. So cool. And it's isn't that what we're all about here? <laughs> it really is. That and, you know, truly a random space fact. On to trivia. On to trivia. Last time around, we asked you, how many NASA administrators have there been in the wake of the current administrator, Sean O'Keefe, resigning? And uh, how'd we do, Matt? Well, we or rather our listeners did well. We got lots of entries, once again, from all over
0: the world and a variety of uh, correct answers. Interesting little variations, even among those who were right, because... There were, if you count two acting administrators, or in our terminology, NASA. Acting dudes. Acting dudes, NASA, acting NASA dudes. But really, there were 10 who were sort of full-time guys in the job, and they were identified by a lot of people.
4: Ah, but it's even more complicated, and we didn't realize that. uh, Well, we hadn't thought that through, (laughs) or we would have been clearer as to what we were looking for, but James Fletcher was administrator twice, so there are nine separate people serving 10 separate terms. We give it to either answer, choosing randomly between those that gave those answers. And here's our random winner, who happens to be one of the people who gave it to us in the
0: most detail, actually gave the names and tenures uh, of each of the administrators, including the acting administrators, which he duly noted, and the winner is Morris Glover, Morris Glover of Abbotsford, Victoria, in Australia, and So we have another of our Australian listeners who uh, won out today, and he's going to take a medium-sized Planetary Radio t-shirt, if you please. Uh, Morris, we're going
4: to put that in the uh, international mail to you soon. Congratulations. And if you'd like your chance to win the fabulous Planetary Radio t-shirt, answer the following question. How many cameras or imagers are on board each of the Mars Exploration Rovers? How many cameras on each of the Mars Exploration Rovers? Go to planetary.org slash radio to find out how to enter our contest and send us your wonderful answer and try to win that Planetary Radio t-shirt.
0: And get it to us by January 10, 2005. Still sounds strange. Give me a couple of weeks. January 10, 2005 at noon Pacific time. That's Monday. So that you can get your name in and uh, maybe win that fabulous Planetary Radio T-shirt.
4: All right, everybody. Go out there looking up the night sky and think about who first developed coffee. Thank you and good night.
0: Coffee, which which I bet was a big part of the success of the
4: Mars Exploration Rover teams, (laughs) as it is for most people. Undoubtedly, it was also a key component on the spacecraft itself. It's a little-known fact. (laughs) (laughs) The little-known percolator. (laughs) Exactly. Which does not count as one of the cameras, by the way.
0: Say goodnight, Bruce. Goodnight, Bruce. Bruce Betts is the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society. He joins us each week here on What's Up. Join us next time for a pre-launch look at the Deep Impact mission. Have a great week.